From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I am your host, David Breer. We've just finished recording this week's show, and it is an absolute doozy. We're bringing you some of the biggest stories of the week, including European investing app shares snaps up $40 million financing round. Their CEO gives us an amazing overview of actually what they've been doing, the aspirations of really where they want to go from a geographical perspective, and it is amazing to hear. Next up, we had Plaid launches their variable reoccurring payments. Open banking is going from strength to strength in that sense. And we had Dan Morgan on the show to talk a little bit about what that means for Plaid and what that means from an industry perspective. And we dip into the FinTech Insider mailbag to give you guys a bit of an overview of actually what does it take to really jump into the financial services, the FinTech space and be successful, and a bunch of other questions that you really wanted us to get to grips with. We get into all this and much, much more on today's show. But first, let's have a quick break with some messages. Don't go anywhere. Here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or somebody you know are up for a challenge and fancy working for one of Flex's most flexible companies, come check out our open roles. We have roles in growth, product, sales, talent, and more. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. That's 11fs.com forward slash careers. Welcome to episode 650, 650, oh my goodness, of Fintech Insider. My name is David Brewer and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Nicole Perry, who is the Strategy Director, Business Design and Growth here at 11FS. How's it going, Nicole? Yeah, pretty good. Thanks, David. Good to be back. What have you been up to? Like, just a small thing, nothing, nothing major. Like, what have you been doing? Yeah, well, for those of you that don't know, I've just returned from completing the whole of the Tour de France route for charity one week ahead of the professionals. So um, after landing back in the UK last week, I'm finally feeling the energy levels coming back to normal. Uh, Slight twinge in the old quad still, but, uh, you know, walking a bit funny. Yeah, we can deal with that. I mean, I wouldn't be walking for six months if I did the Tour de France. (laughs) I I said this to you earlier on, it's like just on like 10 minutes into doing the Peloton and I basically need a a doctor, but... uh, very impressive. Is this somehow because of the yellow jersey? Then, have you got you got a yellow dress on now as a, like a homage to the yeah the whole thing? Yeah? Pretty much. I am dragging this one out as long as is physically possible. It's very impressive. Talk a little bit more about you did, did then, and actually you did it for uh, you raised a, a real good chunk of money, didn't you? Yep. So I was doing it for Cure Leukemia, which is a charity that's very close to my heart. My mum's a blood cancer survivor, um, and I raised thirty three thousand pounds. And the team overall, I did it with eighteen other riders. Uh, we've just uh, managed to top off £900,000 in fundraising. Wow. That is super, super cool. You've come back, you know, tanned and, and, and toned, but you've done it for a good cause as well, which is yeah, which is great. So exactly. Well and, and yeah, super, super glad to be back. Super excited to be here. So okay. thank you. I mean, it makes my last couple of weeks seem pale in insignificance to the thing you've done. So I'm just going to move on at that point. But uh, as always, we're joined by some super special guests making a welcome return to Fintech Insider. We have Dan Morgan, who is the policy lead Europe at Plaid. Welcome back to the show, Dan. How's it going? Brilliant. Yeah, great to be here in person. Thanks. No, I oh, know it's lovely, isn't it? Like, yeah, uh, got to open a beer in actually in the office exactly. as well. I much, I, I find much more drinking on the podcast when other people are around rather than just doing it on a, yeah. in my office at home. I get 
real disapproving looks from my uh, my 10-year-old. It's kind of weird. But uh, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, tell us a little bit more about Plaid. So Plaid is an open banking payment platform which powers digital financial services. Uh, we connect with over 12,000 different banks and power over 6,000 different fintech uh, applications. We're based in the UK, uh, in across the EU, and of course, in the United States. Very, very cool. And we'll come to that uh, foreshadowy, foreshadowy in the news a little bit later. Uh, Making a FinTech Insider debut, we have Ben Shamler, who is the CEO and co-founder at Shares. Uh, How are you doing, Ben? I'm good. I'm good, David. How about you? Pretty good, pretty good. Not as good as Nicole, but uh, you know, I feel I feel like I need to step my game up on that sense. But uh, for anybody who doesn't know, tell us a little bit more about Shares. Of course, thank you very much. Uh, first is the first uh, share story is the first social trading platform we just launched a couple of months ago. Uh, the UK, uh, it was a huge success uh, on shares. You can basically uh, trade, buy stocks, but also contact with your friends, have access to your friends' portfolio. Uh, you can chat, you can see in real time their activity on the activity sections, uh, comment their uh, positions, their moves, uh, and, uh, and share the emotions. So more than just like a trading platform where like trades are being executed, it's really like a community, a movement that has just actually started and uh, is, uh, is uh, really uh, ambitious. Fantastic. Well, we'll we'll come to that more, and and you know, community in fintech. It's what it's all about, right? In that sense. So, uh, but we'll come back to you in a in a second to talk about that a little bit more. Uh, last but by no means least, it's another fintech insider debut for Christy Kim, who is the co-founder and CEO over at Tomo Credit. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. No worries at all. Tell us a little bit more about Tomo Credit. Yeah, so we are based in San Francisco, and I'm originally from Seoul, South Korea. So when I first came to the U.S., I didn't know anything about credit score. And in my 20s, whenever I applied for an auto loan and credit cards, I got rejected over and over again. So I built Tomo Credit to help other immigrants to get approved uh, for a credit card right away. So that's what we do. We issue credit cards for people who don't have credit scores. Fantastic. I mean, that's a huge population of people to to solve that problem for. And it's always nice to solve a problem that you've experienced yourself in that sense, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I always tell people that I wish Tomo Credit existed when I was in my 20s, so I could skip all the struggle. Very good. Very good. All right. Well, we better get on with the news because there's a lot of it this week. So uh, first story that we picked up was uh, covered in a bunch of places, but we picked up in Bloomberg was Peter Thiel's fund leads $40 million round in shares app. So Peter Thiel backed Valor Ventures is leading a $40 million financing round into European investment app shares. The new round of financing brings the year old company's total funds raised to $90 million. It will also give shares further cash to expand across Europe, the company said in a statement. The Paris-based company, founded in 2021 and launched in the UK two months ago, said it has more than 150,000 users who access the app to trade stocks, read market data, and chat about investing as well. Shares is now looking to continue expanding across Europe by hiring regional managers in Spain, Germany, Poland, Sweden, and the Netherlands. I mean, I should probably stop reading about what you're up to, Benjamin, and you could tell us a little bit more. So congratulations. That's that's super cool. I mean, not only is it super cool to get the funding, but I mean, Peter Thiel's, uh, he doesn't back a, uh, the sort of uh, the losers in that sense. He's always backing the winners. So, you know, that's a, that's a great uh, buy-in to what you guys are looking to achieve as an organization. 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we got very lucky because uh, not only they are backing us for our Series B, but actually they are doubling down because uh, they also led the Series A f only four months ago, uh, which uh, was uh, the same size. So that's, you know, uh, that is an amazing uh, news and fantastic news. And that just showed that uh, what basically we were about to launch when they led the Series A uh, is a success right now. And we already have like market data that show that there's a huge traction for our product. Um, we did not expect that to happen that fast, uh, you know, when we launch. And, um, and yeah, so, so now we have all the money in bank uh, uh, necessary to expand and, uh, and you know, be uh, um, ambitious in that sense. We're targeting three continents by end of the uh, year only. So uh, currently working on uh, our European expansion, but not only, also targeting LATAM and, uh, um, and Asia. Uh, so, yeah, I've been... Uh, quite busy over the last few weeks and, uh, and super pumped to share this uh, fantastic news. Fantastic. Well, it's, it's amazing progress as well. As you say, you know, founded in 2021 to have gone that quickly to this scale and to have that greater ambition from a geographical expansion perspective. That's, uh, that's huge. I mean, when you started the business, uh, you know, uh, at the beginning, were you like, this is the growth rate we're expecting or, or is it gone better than you ever could have imagined? You know, um, I actually have been an entrepreneur for about a decade, and this is my fourth company. Uh, and when you, you know, when you've done like a couple of companies before, actually, uh, you've done a lot of mistakes, and you had also some success. And I've learned from both. And uh, it's like basically, I wanted uh, uh, to create the perfect, uh, to 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 have all the perfect uh, elements around the table uh, in order for us to be able to uh, go fast. Uh, and it started by the team, uh, and I got quite lucky. Uh, to bring quite early in the process a bunch of former executives from Revolut, from Monzo, from Morgan Stanley, from Coinbase, from a bunch of like super successful uh, startups, uh, very inspiring. And, uh, and that's also something that helped us in our journey uh, because like almost from our inception, we had people that have already done it before in different places. And all united together, we've been able to move like five times faster. So yeah, in 15 months only, uh, we've raised a team of 200 employees uh, with 20 different nationalities, six different offices. Uh, so yeah, it's been a, a quite intense year. And I think that's the kind of uh, aggressiveness that Peter Thiel and Valar Venture uh, mainly are uh, quite, uh, um, they appreciate and so explain the reason why they've been backing us. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting and uh, sort of bringing everybody else into this. I mean, in a world where actually, you know, we're seeing announcements around uh, people sort of dropping numbers of uh, of employees and different things. I mean, actually, for, from Ben's perspective, with a, you know, a war chest of investment and, and sort of running at the market, like it's a good time for him to be scaling in that sense. But uh, what, what do you think, Nicole? Yeah, I, I, I just massive congratulations. And I, I love the concept of, of this being a service that's on offer. Particularly, I think it's got such potential to bring women far more into investing and close that investment gap. And I love the idea that women could feel empowered to meet others and build their confidence and chat and and meet other people like them that they might not necessarily have in their lives at the moment. Um, so, yeah, I think it's an amazing idea. Um, I'd love to use it. I'm going to go on and try it. And, um, yeah, who knows what inspiration you could find as a result. So thank you for building it. Thank you. And, you know, uh, talking about women, we got quite surprised because about 40% of our users are women. And, you know, if you look at the space, the retail space, retail investor space in general, it's about only 7% of them that are women. So I think we succeed in somehow creating a more like 
welcoming and, and a diverse audience uh, that we really want to keep growing and scaling. And, uh, and, um, and you know, there is many reasons behind, but it starts by, you know, creating a less intimidating app, more easy to use, accessible for people that are new to this, you know, and I was one of them, you know, when I started to trade, I never knew what to do, where to start, uh, what to uh, invest in. And I was asking my friend and that's really how uh, I came up with the idea. I have no uh, education, in, no financial education. So I figured that other people might lack uh, the same uh, thing that I do. And, and we came up with shares. That's super interesting. And you sort of touched at the top of the show about community. Do you want to expand on that a little bit more? Because as you say, the the nervousness that anybody has in this space, and, and to your point, the you know advice from a friend or a family member is usually how investment sort of goes. But you know, community is such a, a, a huge thing in, in in fintech much more broadly. But but for this type of product, is it's it's critical, isn't it? That virality of the things that are working, the things that are not, the the patterns that other people see. Yeah, absolutely, David. So, you know, we live in a world where uh, almost every decision we make is based on our uh, community, close circle uh, opinion, right? We look at reviews online before making any decision when we want to move and, you know, rent a new flat or, uh, you know, even like change uh, our job and, you know, join a new company. The first thing we might going to do is ask around. You know, ask my, I'm going to ask my parents, my friends, my, my siblings, what do you guys think about this neighborhood? What do you think about these shoes? So it makes a lot of sense nowadays to go through the same uh, process when it comes to uh, financial decision, right? And in addition to that, I think like people are lacking a lot of uh, information. Um, and until recently, finance has always been only exclusive to the 1%, right? And, and, and it, you needed like a lot of like knowledge to understand what, uh, what, you know, to begin with, what is an ETF? What uh, is a stock? Like, uh, you know, why is it so expensive also? And so the transition happened with fractional shares, uh, which was a major innovation, you know, like this app, like allowing people to invest as little as one pound. This was a huge innovation because all of a sudden there was no longer any barrier to entry. But it doesn't mean, it's not because it's easy that you know what you're doing. So I think we are this next generation of app that not only offered fractional shares, but also offer an opportunity for people to actually team up with their friends, connect with their close circle and make more wide decisions. And it's, I think it's very logic as an evolution. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, Dan, like, um, you know, proposition aside, I mean, that that scale of, of growth, I mean, I know you guys at, at Plaid are no, uh, no stranger to the, that, that sort of scale of, of growth in terms of customers and, uh, and geos, but that's, that's, well, impressive, if not slightly scary, if, if I'm honest with you. As a CEO of a business, I'm, I'm sitting here going, oh my God, like the operation of like running all of those different things, like, that must be really difficult. But what, what do you think? Super exciting. Shares is, uses the Plaid platform. Um, so we love to see uh, our partners grow together. Um, so super excited about, about your success and shows that despite some of the stories, there's, there's, there's funding to be had out there. Uh, FinTech is, uh, is still a valuable proposition. So no, uh, great news and congratulations and uh, hopefully go from strength to strength. So, so I guess if anybody's uh, listening to this in Spain, Germany, Poland, uh, Sweden, or Netherlands, I'm guessing head to your website for jobs, Ben. Like that's probably a good Absolutely. shout, right? Absolutely. 
Awesome. All right. Well, uh, no doubt we will uh, we'll we'll talk again as as more on this goes. But if you're looking for further insights on the future of investing, go check out episode six four nine of FinTech Insider, where we spoke to guests from Free Trade, Lightyear, and Plum all about that stuff. All right. We better move on though. There is many other stories happening this week. Uh, we picked this one up in many places, but Tech.eu was where we will reference. Uh, Plaid jumps into ludicrous speed with new variable reoccurring payments products. So London-based open banking network and payments platform Plaid has launched a variable reoccurring payments product. The open banking provider is releasing the product to help customers in the UK with online payments to enable reoccurring transfers between users' own accounts with just one authorization. Plaid is vowing to save businesses up to £1.5 billion. We're going to unpick that number in a minute, Dan. Uh, in fees dependent on policymakers opening the taps. In a new report, the company found that VRP is extended beyond the current mandate sweeping use cases, and the low cost is therefore protected. Uh, UK businesses could save as much as £1.5 billion. All right, Dan, um, tell us a little bit more about that. I mean, firstly, give us a bit of a one-on-one, uh, obviously for, for global listeners, variable reoccurring payments, uh, might not be an acronym that they are uh, familiar with. So tell us a little bit more. So uh, the term really, I suppose, is, is rooted in policy, but I'll give you a bit of a definition to start with. It's, uh, it's exactly what it says on, on the tin. Uh, it's a payment solution that allows customers to make automated, reoccurring, flexible payments within an agreed parameter, uh, and they can vary in frequency and value. The key thing for open banking payments is they don't need to be authentic, uh, don't need an individual transaction to be authenticated by SCA, so they can run in the background. The key, uh, they're also a push payment, so like a normal open banking payment, so uh, but without the friction. So that's the the key part of it. What makes it a policy thing is that um, we go all the way back to the open banking uh, uh, mandate, the standard, uh, the retail banking investigation, and one of the things they, they uh, identified that could improve competition was something called sweeping. Uh, through uh, through VRPs. So sweeping is a limited subset of what you can do with VRPs. So in the case of UK open banking, this is mandated. So it, therefore, it's defined as to what it is, but it's also free provided by the banks. So the nine largest banks have provided an API for sweeping. But this use case is limited to money moving to the same account with the same name, so a me-to-me payment, and has some more definition around it because of that uh, idea around retail banking competition. So overdraft unbundling, uh, alternative forms of credit, loan repayment, credit cards, et cetera, savings accounts. So it is quite uh, defined, and that's where we're at at the moment in terms of the definition of sweeping. But there is going to be an area beyond that, which in the industry has turned commercial VRP. Uh, and this is uh, essentially the not just me-to-me payments, but third-party payments. So it looks like, uh, think of it like direct debit, uh, where you can pay recurring bills, one-click e-commerce payments. Um, and that's much more of an open, an open market. Um, it's not free. It's uh, negotiated at the moment between banks and TPPs and is going to be bilateral uh, at this stage. Um, so there, that's the two markets. We've got the mandated sweeping, which banks have to provide, uh, which is me to me, which is a lot of use cases still. Uh, you, can, you, know, you can still provide a lot of uh, utility around that. And then this new emerging market, which our report uh, is about. Very cool. I mean, I think uh, there's so much hype in the VRP space, I mean, do you think it is? I'll, I'll give you my, uh, I'll give you my sort of hopes and dreams in a second. But do you think it's justified how excited people are getting about it? Obviously, it, 
I, I'm guessing the answer is yes, given the investment that you guys are making. But uh, but it really has the potential to be a game changer. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, just think about how many uh, reoccurring payments you have coming out of your bank account and the sort of uh, amount that they are often uh, for. Um, and obviously, if we see a shift away from card-based to account-to-account payments, this is going to be a, a tool which which picks that up. Um, so, no, I think it's a I think it's a big move. Uh, single immediate open banking payments can only go so far. This is going to open up a whole new chunk uh, of the market in that space. So, no, I think it is. And the fact that uh, you only have to SCA once will mean that it'll become much more easy in the background. Uh, they are um, more user-friendly. You don't have to, uh, you know, there's no more costs around the intermediation, instant settlement. Um, you can control the parameters. So I don't need, I can, you know, I can instantly stop the payment, whereas a direct debit might take a long time to, to change. There's a lot more control at the front end on the consent side. So I think, I know the industry is excited about it. So I do think, uh, I think it's going to have a big impact. Yeah, I'd say every six weeks or so, me and friend of the show, Mike Kelly, get super excited in DMs about this because yeah. it's like, oh my God, we could do this. And it's like the the 1.5 billion fee that you, you got to, how, how did you break that down? Because like, in my head, I'm like, well, overdrafts costs don't exist ever again because if it's a me to me and actually I can set something up that looks at my overdraft and have I got money in the savings account and it moves it across like that's a super easy you know an intelligent digital service to create but that can save customers lots of problems and lots of cost right so that's the sweeping use case, which is me to me. The, the report is actually looking at the commercial side. Yeah. And, and businesses, yeah. And, and businesses. And uh, banks, you know, we're negotiating and, and they're looking to recoup some some costs. They don't have the same overheads themselves. They're not covering a lot of the liability around that. But um, it is, was, was put forward by the government, this should be a commercial space. Um, so we calculated, we looked at industry and said, so what, what's fair? So we, uh, we looked at all the processing fees for direct debits in the economy. I think it's 1.6 billion reoccurring card payments was about 45 million per annum and card on file about 33 million per annum. This was the cost. So the total fees associated with that was 2.2 billion. If we looked at them were all replaced by commercial VRP at a 10 basis point cost, that would be a 1.5 billion pound saving on putting all them recurring payments Put them onto CVRP and having it at ten basis points. But I think it's. I think uh, we did some other numbers on there as well. Uh, if it was at twenty basis points, then it would be around six hundred and fifty million. Um, I think uh, accordingly, and then we've sort of factored it down. And I think we put in there that uh, as the volume grows in industry, then there could be room to change that and look at it. But if we want this to grow and the. Bear in mind, the government is super focused on competition in payments. They're looking at card schemes and the cost that they apply on them that we want, you know, we don't want it to kill it off before it's too early. So that was the proposition. But um, many people have said it's pretty generous because actually, you know, it's just an issuing fee, really. They've already built the APIs. But uh, ultimately, as I said in, in, in other times we've talked about open banking, there does need to be some skin in the game. And we think this is a fair proposition. We also looked at cards uh, in terms of, I know it's not an interchange per se, but that they had to step into the market because it was a, an asymmetric market. It wasn't necessarily working. There was some, uh, there was a, somewhat of a market failure because of the the number of players there. We feel potentially that the government's got precedent here could step in the regulator to enable the market to work better. Yeah. Okay. So your maths check out. I believe your numbers. It's not just a catchy <laughs> headline. It actually is a real one, which is which is great. But uh, I mean, we you sort of said open banking there. I mean, obviously this is the next step in that. 
and actually the next stage of being able to sort of democratize more of these things and put consumers sort of in in control of a lot of this is that uh i mean this won't be the last time well, it won't be the last time we have you on the show with a headline about a feature you've launched because open banking is a thing. But but obviously, I mean, it's interesting as a, you know, with your UK presence, the capability you can now do building on those building blocks. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, I think open banking uh, per se is at the bottom of the hockey stick. You know, we've just started to mature. Use cases are developing. Uh, the payment side of it is growing a lot more than it was. Um, I think the roadmap from UK Open Banking has, has been pretty good um, and compared to some other markets has been well implemented to, to some extent, could be better. We'll see how what develops next when the, uh, you know, the, the CMA, OBI moves to this thing called JROC. But it is starting to develop. Use cases are coming in. Um, you know, we're starting to see some big ticket users in the government and others. So I, I think we're, we're really early on and, and we're really excited about what comes next. Very cool. Christy, I'd love, love to know your views on this one. It's um, it's an interesting one as we move into the future where we're seeing more capability that allows customers to sort of automate their financial life rather than, ooh, what's my balance and can I solve a problem? It's like the automation around financial services. It it feels like we're, we're really sort of moving forward as an industry when those base level capabilities are really being put in, in place, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. I think open banking is making uh, the banking so easy. Um, so compared to when I was like fresh out of college, right now, all the college students, for example, in the US, they all use a uh, fintech app. And then because of open banking, they can really uh, easily share data. And for Tomo Credit, that's the fundamental of what we do, because we approve credit cards without asking you to uh, have a credit score without checking your credit score. So we need to get the real-time data right away. So with open banking, we are able to look at our customers' data up to two years or sometimes longer than that. And we get the free cash flow data and we can also look at your stock portfolio data or crypto data. So we can have this holistic view of your personal asset, personal finance through open banking. So the whole thing, the whole application takes less than two minutes. And, and um, I think you mentioned about automation. I think that's a key one for for VRPs in, in the background. We, we've launched uh, yesterday at the same time as a report with Expensify um, because they have a business uh, card that they've launched and they're sweeping straight away the, the payment for this in the background for expenses. And think how annoying doing expenses are. Uh, just a little thing like that can really drive automation, really drive efficiency gains. Um, and this is just on the sweeping use case because it's obviously me-to-me payments. Um, so if you move that beyond into third parties, there's going to be a lot more automation in the background using open banking rails, using instant payments. Um, so I think that's a really exciting thing about open banking too is how we can automate things. Yeah, definitely. I, I do. I really do think that is the that is the future. Like, and actually, it's a it's a funny one because we all sort of. We're all sort of out of a job at that point, right? Yeah. Because uh, because actually, uh, you know, and actually, I mean, I think in, in pretty much every slice of financial services to a certain degree, it's, uh, you know, Ben, actually, in terms of, you know, engagement from an investment perspective, when you can, uh, that can automate based on the things that people are looking at or following certain people in order to, you know, buy in the community sense. It's like, actually, that's where we've got to get to, isn't it? Which is, and, and I know, uh, Dan, we've talked about this already uh, um, with regards to open 
banking, but actually it's about using the best of us when it comes to the intelligence that the best investment person can bring to this space in order to then democratize that down to people who don't have the time, don't have the knowledge, don't have the education, but could still really benefit from engaging in the market. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think like really um, we uh, have this unique opportunity with tech to really like uh, elevate uh, the level uh, and uh, the access and democratize the access, uh, and and that's what we're doing. You know, our products uh, are like making it so simple that we need to uh, add another layer, uh, and that's the community uh, one that uh, we we built. So yeah, definitely, and uh, and you can connect with people that eventually you didn't expect to be so knowledgeable. Uh, I was surprised during the you know the first year of COVID. Uh, I was joining you know group chats on Telegram, and I realized that some some dude that I haven't spoke with in years that I went to meet school with, they were like super knowledgeable, and I didn't expect that at all. And all of a sudden, we were like just sharing so much about our lives and opinion. And I was also, in addition to that, learning about stuff about companies, about products, about companies' visions and what they're trying to achieve. And that's uh, the other thing, you know. And I don't know, you, I must admit, you, you've seen like what happened on Reddit during uh, 2020, right? With the GameStop movement and all the meme stock. Um, and yeah, the, I mean, the, the interesting part of it is that I think like people now, they want to vote also with their money, right? They, it's, it's not just only they're trying to make money. Like some people like buy BlackBerry stock, Nokia stocks and, and GameStop stocks during 2020, not to make money, but to support these companies, you know, to buy a piece of brands they love. And that's another like um, thing that I think I find interesting. Yeah, it is interesting how that how that happens, isn't it? For sure. Go on, Christy. Sorry. I want to add a comment. You know, speaking of Reddit, we just went viral on Reddit this morning. We got one million views. And nice. someone was commenting that Tomo Credit sounds like a Robin Hood for credit cards. So I'm like, <laughs> do I need to take this as a compliment or a warning? <laughs> I was not sure. Yeah, it's 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 either a really subtle diss or a compliment. Like it, it's uh, you never know. But uh, but yeah, I mean, virality is like they say no. Uh, you know, no PR. Uh, there is no bad PR in that sense, isn't there, in terms of figuring out. Nick, Nicole, what do you think on this one, just to kind of close this out? I mean, obviously, uh, uh, the UK market, I mean, we've had been hit pretty hard on various different fronts with Brexit, this and da-da-da-da. But open banking in the UK space is still really at the head of the you know the forefront of the industry, I would say. Yeah, I think um, from a bank perspective, if I was to think about my clients that we speak to, you know, I couldn't encourage considering adopting this, you know, more than anything. It's Overall, better customer experience, lower cost, potentially lower fraud. The customer has a better, potentially better retention with the merchant because there's that ongoing variable relationship that's better transactionally for the bank. Um, so, yeah, I think um, banks are opening up more and more to open banking, and I think that this could certainly be the next step. So, yeah, great news. Very, very cool. Uh, for more on open banking, because we love talking about open banking, keep an eye out for an upcoming insight show uh, where we're going to be talking about PSD3. It ain't out yet. We're even talking about it. It's like preempting uh, the consultation process, everything that will go into it, our hopes and dreams and everything that we'll expect from that, uh, including... Dan, you're on that as well, aren't you? We're going to be talking about open banking a lot these days, aren't we? All right. On that note, we're going to have a quick break. We'll be back with you very shortly. <laughs> So we're going to go out on a limb here and assume that you're enjoying this podcast. We're also going to assume that, like us, you're a fintech nerd and that our podcasts, live events, video series and documentaries keep you tapped into everything that's happening across fintech and connected to the fintech community. 
So if you're interested in creating content that informs and entertains, then you should definitely chat to our media team and get in touch on sponsors at 11fs.com. Welcome back. All right, let's get on with the next story. Uh, this is one that was picked up in many places. We picked up in TechCrunch. Tomo Credits raises $22 million at a $222 million valuation towards its goal of making credit scores obsolete. Tomo Credit has raised $22 million in a Series B funding round at a post-money valuation of $222 million. So too many twos in that. I felt like I was going to get it wrong at, uh, at some point. Uh, as well as security $100 million in debt financing. The round has attracted strategic investors, including Morgan Stanley's Next Level Fund, MasterCard, and debt from Silicon Valley Bank as well. Uh, Tomo Credit's underwriting algorithm called Tomo Score can identify high potential borrowers without a credit score. The company has reported high market demand for its first product, the Tomo Credit Card, uh, and we'll be using the money. I guess we're going to find out now, Christy. Like, tell us more. Like, this is this is huge. Congratulations. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. So the fundraising uh, was a really good event for us, given the market environment right now in the U.S., and that is totaling our entire fundraising to $137 million as of today, historically. Uh, so we are going to mainly spend money in two ways. First is we want to diversify our product. So we started as a single product, Tomo Credit Card. It is unsecured credit card, and we give up to $30,000 in credit limit. So without a credit score at all in the U.S., you are uh, eligible to get up to $30,000, which is totally new and unique. Uh, here in the US. So we got a lot of excitement from our early customers and users. So we were growing a lot. We grew 1000% last year without spending a lot of money in marketing. So that gave us really, uh, that gave us confidence enough that, okay, the alternative underwriting works. Uh, and alternative underwriting is all based on the open banking data. We don't use fuzzy data like social media or et cetera. So we are going to launch auto loan and mortgages in the next couple of years. And we need to hire product and engineering for that. Amazing. That, I mean, that. I think you when you say it went well for you, I think that might be the the under uh, underplaying of the century in the, in that sense. But that I mean that that gro- uh, I mean the growth that we're seeing across everybody in the uh, in our uh, in our panel today is is phenomenal. I think if I think both you, Nicole, and, and you, Dan, sort of said it's like, like if anybody was questioning fintech at this stage in terms of the opportunities, like that's amazing. So a thousand percent growth. I mean, you're, the customers that you're tapped into and the product market fit that you've got, that's just an amazing thing to see. Yeah, uh, thank you. So I was not sure what to expect last year because uh, we are still new uh, young company we've been around only three years so last year was the time we were aggressively growing but i was not sure how the performance will come out especially on the loan default side because yes we have thousand percent growth but what if everyone you know default that's uh, a healthy dose of fear that we had and after looking back the data and then an analysis we realized that oh our Tomo credit card performance is better than American Express performance. I I said that, and it was just true. And that, 
I think gave a lot of extra conviction uh, to our existing investors and new investors. Yeah. How, how have you gone about fueling that growth then? Because obviously, uh, you, you know, you, you said at the top of the show, you wish this type of product existed uh, for you in that in that sense. But how has uh, how has that happened? Is it have you just got like the most amazing marketeer in the world? Or is this is this virality? Is this people going, this has really helped me and therefore this will help you and telling 10 people and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. How, how have you fueled that? Yeah, because I started the company with my own pain point because I struggled so much. I couldn't rent an apartment in San Francisco. I got rejected from auto loans five times in a row in my 20s. So because I suffer so much, I think I knew where my customers are. I know how to find people like me. So when we first launched, we immediately went to all the top schools in the US and then targeted international students because I was international student um, and I knew that all the international students are in the same situation. They do not have any existing debt. They do have healthy uh, personal finance because to come to the US as an international student, we need to prove our uh, finances and parents' finances so we are not coming here to default. So with that being said, international students here in the US, majority of them, I would say, are pretty good, but they are denied access to credit because their lack of history in the US. So I went to them first, and then they started telling their friends and their non-international friends started using it as well because they felt like this is a great alternative to debit card because debit card does not give you a credit score after paying after paying back but credit card tomo credit card gives you a credit score after you continuously using it and paying back that's amazing i mean it shows a real uh, sort of frailty in the existing credit scoring process then, doesn't it? I mean, a, a lot of the times these things have been put in place years and years and years before without real thought of, you know, the use cases of, of modern day life. So actually, you know, you're, you're sort of almost making up for the the lack of the rails to, to really sort of um, support customers in a real way today, aren't you? Yeah, I love that you you said the word modern day lives. I think that's uh, exactly what it is. Credit score was built more than 100 years ago, but it couldn't keep up with the new trends and new lifestyle. And right now, 2022, people are mobile. People move around all the time. And so and we are global. So it's really not fair that credit bureau system are asking people to fit into the legacy system that was built 100 years ago when everyone was kind of having the same lifestyle and then living in the same place the one place so for me the innovations in credit space in the us is uh uh well due uh, and i am very proud and happy that we happen to be the first mover in the space and proving that hey guys we can do it differently we are going to do step by step. We are proving it with credit card first, and then we are going to show that we can do it with the auto loan, and we can do the same with mortgages as well. Yeah, amazing. Um, Nicole, what do you think to this? It's uh, again, I know we've talked a lot on this show about um, you know the the sort of numbers in the niches in that sense, but I mean, this is another another great example of actually if you find product market fit and solve a real problem for for people, that scales on like a thousand percent scales. Like that's impressive. 
Yeah, for sure. And what I really love that you've done, Christy, is you've actually looked at the sort of value chain of how a customer gets a product and completely disrupted that entirely. Quite often we see financial services providers or new fintechs simply innovating on top of what already exists. And actually, it might be a nice customer experience and something different, but it doesn't fundamentally disrupt or change or solve or get to the bottom or solve the customer's need. Um, So I think that's amazing. And it just is a great reminder that we should never, ever accept what we think is the status quo or accept that we do things this way because they've always been done that way. So, yeah, great example of of truly, truly looking beyond kind of what is presented to you as this, the norm in everyday life today in financial services. I think that one of the really exciting thing is the, the thin credit file area of open banking is really exciting. And there's quite a few examples uh, in the UK of credit ladder products for rental. Um, scheme. So one of our customers, Canopy, uses open banking data to build a rental passport, which builds your credit score as well. So I think there's a lot of examples out there. It's a really strong area of using alternative data sources, but also live transaction data, whether it be through open banking or, or other sources as well, is is a key one. Uh, so yeah, super exciting. It's interesting. And, and you know, Christy, you touched on this in terms of like the, you know, by nature, we are global now, you know, Brexit aside and a few other things in terms of make you know we can't get from uh, you know Dover to Calais apparently <laughs> this week but uh, I think that's down to the kids uh, holidays but you know in terms of all of the the systems around that they are inherently local you know we're a global uh, international audience of, of people but but actually all of the systems that we integrate with or I- interact with are inherently local in that sense but uh, you know credit scores are, are, are managed completely differently in completely different geos I mean Ben. There, there isn't really like a formal credit score in France. Is that right? No, no, we don't have the same situation. Uh, but, you know, listening to Christy, uh, I'm super impressed by uh, your idea and, and your company and your growth. Um, I actually lived in the U.S., you know. Uh, I moved in the U.S. in uh, 17, 2017, and I lived there for almost four years. Uh, and, you know, in France, I had like sold two companies. Uh, I had like some successes. And, and I got to the U.S. and I was like, not even capable of getting a credit card. You know, it was like tough. And, uh, and I wish I had, uh, uh, you know, your access to your service back then. So I was like with my debit card and like, yeah, it was, it was tough. And, and yeah, I think what you're doing is uh, super smart and brilliant. So yeah, congratulations. I, I wish I, I had the opportunity to use it like uh, years ago and, uh, and even to met you uh, when you started to invest uh, in your company. Now you're way too big. <laughs> <laughs> When you come back to the US, I will make you as our PIC. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> See, acquiring acquiring one customer at a time. It's the, the best way of doing it in that sense. But um, yeah, m- massive congratulations on that. It's uh, a huge success and uh, looking forward to see what you do with the investment and looking forward to seeing how the, the auto loan uh, works and, and everything else around that as well. It's going to be uh, really, really great to see. Um, for more on credit scores, in fact, if you go and check out Kate Moody's Explores video on, on YouTube, uh, where she is actually talking about what is your credit score and why are they important to financial services more broadly. So head over to the 11FS YouTube channel where you can see more on that. 
All right. Next up, we had a story that we picked up over on Crowdfund Insider. Mortgage fintech Maxwell introduces Spanish loan application. So as U.S. demographics change, so does the pool of Americans pursuing home ownership. But Spanish-speaking borrowers often encounter obstacles during the home buying process. To help these home buyers through the process, U.S. mortgage fintech Maxwell has released Maxwell Español, a Spanish language loan app offering a fully translated loan application from landing page all the way through to uh, submission. Uh, to find out why this was the right time to launch a Spanish language platform, we reached out to Maxwell President Brian Simons. Why is Maxwell launching a Spanish language application? They're the overwhelming demographic reasons. Since 2010, the number of Hispanic households has grown year over year, and according to Freddie Mac, in 2021, nearly 41% of Hispanic adults aged 45 and under were deemed mortgage-ready. Moreover, by 2030, Hispanics are projected to represent 56% of all new household formations. These demographic reasons have been known for years, but Maxwell didn't just decide to launch a Spanish-language loan application utilizing a simple translation service. With input from our Hispanic American processors and underwriters, we've been working on this for over a year to create a truly immersive Spanish language experience. Today, what you see in the Hispanic community is that language matters. The ability to speak Spanish is interconnected with culture. In a recent industry study, 57% of Hispanics believe that the Spanish language is more important to them today than it was five years ago. And 62% of millennial Hispanics reported a higher interest in the Spanish language. What you're seeing in the Hispanic community is a bit of retro-acculturation. For Maxwell to help our community lenders best serve the Hispanic market, we have to help them engage the Hispanic consumer in language and in culture. As independent mortgage banks make up nearly 71% of all purchase loans made to Hispanics, Maxwell is continuing to support its core mission of helping our clients in meeting the needs of the communities that they serve. Very cool. I, I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it? I feel in like a post-Trump world, like things are swinging from let's build a wall and like exclude everybody to like actually like how do we fully include everybody and in everything in that sense. And that's a great thing to see, isn't it? This this just couldn't make any more sense. What do you think, Nicole? Yeah, I, th- I think it's great. And I think that some of the best fintechs in the world are those that truly serve a niche and really get to the heart of the customer problem. And I think if you're part of that community and there's financial services that have been built for you to explore that and your most natural confident self, which is your first language, then it just makes sense. Um, in terms of, you know, could could every fintech do this? Is it possible? I think as fintechs internationalize and they expand, you know, it could be something that they could consider. And as tech gets better around learning languages, we could see a world where every single fintech and every single financial services could be available to every single native language of every customer. So I think it's a really strong start to what could potentially become the norm in five years' time. Yeah, and I, and I guess in a world uh, in a world where uh, which sounds like the a movie trailer in a world where like but in a world where you know people are, are moving around the globe more frequently, people are uh, um, being forcibly moved around the globe. Then actually, access to financial services is incredibly important. You know, I'm not sure I could fill out a mortgage application in Spanish, so we shouldn't expect Spanish people to do it in English, should we? In that sense, but what do you think, Dan? 
Well, filling out a mortgage application in your own language is hard enough uh, yeah. as it is um, and probably could help with some API connections and open banking to, <laughs> to make that automated. But no, 100%. Um, as demographics change, it, it makes total sense for markets to adapt to that um, and digital financial services lower cost and increase access across a whole range of areas allowing you to produce more and more tailored uh, uh, products and niche uh, for your target demographics and you know general audience anyway so it makes sense and i'm surprised there hasn't been more out there um when i heard that news uh it surprised me that there wasn't uh, more offerings out there so uh you know makes makes total sense ben this is this is something obviously you know multi in uh, multi geo development over the you know your your growth i mean it's quite complex to handle that in that sense in terms of actually having a back-end system that deals with all of that rather than just creating you know multiple instances of what you're doing i mean this is this is no small feat is it yeah but you know what when you want to be global uh you uh, just make it happen right uh you need to just like uh set the the ambition high and just do what it takes uh to uh to deliver um honestly uh spanish i mean how many people in the world speak spanish it's super easy to uh, find uh, people to help you with the uh, translation copywriting i mean it's the easiest one right after english probably so um so i think obviously um it's harder like to cover like a uh, uh, lot you know of different languages but at least uh, the main ones that's i think it's uh should be required for any company that wants to go global and i think after like living a couple of years in America, I think in America, it's, I mean, so many people speak Spanish, you know, and they have like, uh, sometimes some of their family members who are not like super comfy, you know, comfortable in English, especially when it comes to, uh, uh, finance and making financial decisions. So I think it's, uh, it's not like, should not be a big deal, uh, you know, to implement these things. So we at shares uh, are already currently working on implementing five different languages in our support team, in our products. Um, and working on all the different versions of the app. And uh, yeah, that should be ready for uh, end of October. Very, very cool. Uh, Christy, uh, uh, there's something you've considered at Tomo Credit as well? Yeah, so the core uh, to this is being inclusive. I think that's a really good trend that we are seeing, that how fintech can be more inclusive. And at Tomo Credit, because uh, we target users who happen to have no credit score yet, immigrants, international students, and young students, uh, et cetera. Uh, because our product is like that, our user base happened to be very inclusive. Uh, it was not like I was intentional about the certain uh, user base. So when we looked at the data, we were delighted to find out that more than 90% of our user base are POC, and our team itself is very diverse, over 90% uh, people of color. So I think that kind of gives us this identity and DNA that we do care about different uh, user group and then we want to be as inclusive as possible. And for now, our application itself is so simple, takes less than two minutes and there's no manual entry really needed except your name and date of birth. Because of that, it's all in English now. But we hope that when we add auto loan and mortgage, we can add different language features or still make it very less manual entry-like using open banking services. So there is less manual process that users need to go through. 
Very, very cool. Yeah, you, as you say, the the sort of uh, trend around that is is continuing, and rightly so in that sense, because actually, you know, creating great experiences for uh, for individuals is what fintech's about right you know actually how we do that and how we bring that to the front is uh, is really really critical but i love the idea as you say of of the and and dan i know this will trigger your open banking uh, spidey sense again but as you say christy that the fact that none of that is putting the burden on the customer it's putting the the intelligence in the back office isn't it to actually sort of make these things happen and, and data plays such a big part of that but uh, we're gonna have to move on i'm afraid though because there's a bunch of stories that we didn't quite have time to cover that we should try and have a bit of a shout out to uh because they're doing amazing things like and a lot of this is really big news so uh, uh nicole do you want to kind of get us started with it Sure. Uh, so first on the list is French business bank unicorn Quanto buys German competitor Penta. So uh, Quanto has uh, announced plans to acquire Penta and the deal is expected to close in the next few weeks. And it will help Quanto push hard into Germany where it hopes to become the market leader. Quanto, which launched in France in 2017 and is now valued at 4.4 billion euros, helps SMEs and freelancers with everyday banking, financing, invoicing, bookkeeping and spend management. The Paris-based company says that the purchase of Penta, which also focuses on the SME market, marks the next logical step in its ambition to become the finance provider for 1 million European SMEs and freelancers by 2025. So I think this is a great story and it really showcases that French fintech is firmly on the map uh, and it's becoming bolder and bigger with acquisitions like this. Um, and it's clear that Germany is a hotspot for them. Um, they've already seen huge growth in that market. It's actually their fastest growing market. So it makes sense. This acquisition makes sense. And they're clearly leaning on that momentum. Um, and with SME banking such a hot topic, hoovering up the 50,000 uh, customers of Penta seems like a sensible business decision to me. So, um, yeah, 10 out of 10 thumbs up for me on that one. Yeah, Thanks, it's interesting, David. isn't it? We're funding fintechs eating other fintechs in that sense in terms of like to, to get bigger and bigger. It's uh, super interesting to see. Congratulations to everybody at Penta as well. I know uh, a bunch of them listen to the show. So uh, well done on uh, getting to that point. All right. Uh, next up, there was one that was covered over in the Financial Times, which was top U.S. regulator fires warning shot after Apple pushes into lending. The top U.S. consumer finance regulator has warned that big tech's entry into the buy now, pay later lending business risks undermining competition and raises questions about the use of customer data. Rohit Chopra, the director of Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, fired a warning shot at those potentially following Apple's lead into the buy now pay later space. Among the issues the agency would consider was whether it may actually reduce competition and innovation in the market, Chopra said in an interview. Chopra said big tech's entry into short-term lending raises a host of interesting issues. I mean, I think this one's really interesting because, I mean, you're not really hearing anything in any of the other markets of the sort of concerns. And I know obviously they're doing it in the US, but the US system is sort of a little bit schizophrenic in that sense. In some instances, it's set up to allow the market to be the market. But equally, I think particularly within financial services, it's there to sort of protect the big boys staying the big boys. So I kind of get that. But 
good luck getting, you know, the CEO of Apple to pick up your phone regulator because I'm not sure they necessarily recognize your your authority in this sense. So it's going to be an interesting one, but definitely the trend of more and more players straying into financial services and having a really big impact, it ain't going to go away, is it? So uh, we're going to be talking about this one more and more and more, I'm sure. All right, uh, bringing everybody back for the last final section of the show. This week, we are diving into the FinTech Insider mailbag. We've been asking our listeners to send in any quickfire questions for the panel uh, at FinTech Insiders over on Twitter, and we're going to be answering a few of them at the end of this show. So first up, the question that we had was from Mark Huron, who is from Huron and Hope. Uh, With investment in the FinTech space on a downward trend, I mean, not according to this show. Uh, what is your prediction for how the sector will perform? Probably a thousand percent growth. Hey, Christy, um, over the coming years, is the current VC approach towards financing tech organizations creating companies that don't have the resilience needed to weather headwinds in this market? I'm going to give it like two seconds, and then I think I let all the panel out this one. But it's like I'm not sure that's true. You know, actually, there are great businesses out there scaling really effectively, using money really effectively. I think what this downturn in the economy more broadly will show is that money goes to the where the businesses are really being successful. Um, I mean, Christy, Ben, do you want to pitch in on that? I mean, do you think we are really seeing a, a downward trend in fintech investment? Because every number I look at doesn't seem to suggest that. And I mean, your companies clearly don't suggest that either. So uh, compared to last year, uh, definitely it is slowing down, but I think that can be a good thing. I We are looking at it as more of a discipline. I think companies are getting more disciplined right now that we need to cut all the dead weight and then be leaner so we can run faster and longer. So I tell my team that, hey guys, this whenever there is a change, it can be opportunity. So we need to turn this as opportunity to really look at our financials and find that weight and cut it. So in the long term, we are healthier and leaner. So in that, I think everyone is having a very constructive mindset in that way. Instead of like getting worried, uh, we are thinking it as an opportunity and set us up for the success. Yeah, it feels like quite a, as you say, it feels like quite a healthy tension in that way doesn't it in that sense but ben have you got anything to add on that yeah you know i think like um we used to say in 21 that money was free you know and i think just what changed is like no money money is no longer free uh you have to to deserve it right you have to uh perform show a certain sense of efficiency uh and uh, totally like um rely on what christy just said so uh but if you look at actually at the numbers uh h122 uh it's about the same amount that has been raised in total by startups than H121. I mean, it has decreased from H221, sorry, which was like insanely high. But like in terms of uh, comparison, H1 uh, both years are quite equal. So it hasn't changed much. I think it's just like the spirit uh, has changed. There is a lot of noise right now. But like if you know what you're doing, if you're like very much focused and efficient, uh, there is still... Um, successful companies and uh, great investors to support them. Yeah, the the numbers that I took a look at, I think the deal, yeah, the de- the the total number is about the same. You know, a little bit up in that sense. But as you say, the the makeup of that is is changing. I think uh, last year we saw a lot of people 
you know, battening down the hatches with like mega, mega rounds that are going to see them through the, you know, the winter in that sense. And and the makeup of it is is definitely sort of shifting this year. But uh, good question, though. Um, all right. Second question that we got was from Katie Tobin Hill. What do you make of the collapse of the Australian Neobank vault? What should its UK, European, US counterparts take from this? Uh, I mean, it's 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 very sad. I mean, I think Vault were, were onto an amazing thing. I love the brand. I love that what they were trying to do. I love the positioning in, in there. And they got good traction in that space as well. I mean, it, it's difficult, isn't it? Because actually, we want every business to to succeed in that sense. But I think we often get forget really that it's like 95% of startups fail at some point uh, within the third year, I believe that is in in, in the uh, the makeup of that. I remember when we were building out uh, metal in the UK with, with NatWest, my, my sort of feeling of that is so terrifying to look at those mortality rates of startups. So it's, it's rare for them to get to a, a scale where then suddenly it's such a catastrophic change without something, you know, really significant happening. But it just shows it's just hard to be a bank in that space. I, I think that's probably the the thing we learn. What, what do you think, Nicole? Is there, is there some sort of uh, more abstract lesson we can learn or is it just shit happens sometimes and, uh, you know, we, we feel for all of the people that have lost their, their jobs in that sense and the customers who love that product. But you know, sell V. Yeah, I mean, I profess that Australia is not my most known, well-known market when it comes to fintech, but I think there's been a few other instances of this, right? And it maybe just says something about Australia as a place in terms of the market conditions and whether it's ready, consumers are ready to accept something new, maybe, I don't know. So yeah, really, really sad news. And as you say, when it's gotten to a certain scale and it has to shut down, it's, it's just, yeah, it's pretty sad, but... Yeah, maybe it's just a result of, of what's happening over there at this time. Yeah, maybe. I think there was a lot of um, capital requirement stuff mm. and market in terms of investment yeah. that was in that. But uh, but yeah, it's hard to be a bank, apparently. Uh, so finally, and this is a, a, a question that we get asked um, a lot, but how do I move into fintech? I'm in my mid-30s. I've got no background in finance, but I'd like to get across there and, and make it successful. I mean... Ben, you've made a, a huge success of your career in in uh, being an entrepreneur and everything that that goes with that. What would be your advice to somebody in their mid thirties who's like, yeah, finance seems like a good idea. We'll give it a go. Um, so you know what, I'm 33 years old and I moved to fintech a year ago. So I'm quite uh, I fit with the description. Uh, before uh, shares, I had absolutely uh, no idea. I didn't know anything about fintech about finance. I was in logistic, I was running a company named Stuart, which I sold to DPD, the parent company of uh, uh, the subsidiary of the French Post. And uh, and so, long story short, uh, anything is possible. Everything is possible. But if you want something, just like meet people, go on LinkedIn, uh, connect with people, send messages, uh, you know, grab coffee with uh, friends that works in fintech. And uh, you never know. Um, obviously, if you are not uh, an expert in uh, compliance or uh, in a product uh, or in operations, you can start by working on a different aspect like uh, marketing or, uh, op- you know, expansions, uh, but anything is possible. So there is a uh, sky is the limit. Just like it's up to you to make the decision and the move. We're, we're hiring, so to look in. I mean, that would be an amazing first job in financial services right there. I mean, Christy, I mean, I'm guessing your answer to this is go out there and experience the problem, right? Because essentially, you were so annoyed by the problem, you went and built a business to solve that problem. That's that's a good sort of learning curve, right? 
Yeah, and then I think we are all ex experts because we all spend money. We all interact with money every single day. Whether you're in college, after college, 30, 50, I, in my mind, FinTech is uh, even a playing ground, you know, a playing field in a way that we are, at some extent, all experts because we manage money and that we know what we like, uh, what we don't like. So for me, when I was getting rejected, I was very clear about what I didn't like, credit score, <laughs> credit bureaus. I hated them because, well, uh, I don't even get a shot uh, just because I was not living in the U.S. long enough. So I knew what I didn't like, and I that made me think more and think about, okay, then what do I want to see in this world? What do I want to design? And at that time, let's say more than 10 years ago, there was no open banking infrastructure quite ready. So I couldn't build Tomo Credit at that time. But right now with open banking infrastructure, now I can build Tomo Credit and then do go beyond credit card. So for me, if you are looking to get into fintech, first have that sense of uh, confidence that you are the expert and find the area that you feel the most passionate about, whether it's investing, saving, etc. And then give a shot. And I'm pretty sure that it will be a fun, uh, fun journey. Very, very cool. All right. On that note, if you do want to submit your own question to our mailbag, then check out the link in at Fintech Insider's Twitter bio, and we'll include the link in the show notes for you guys as well. Thank you very much for your questions this week. I hope you enjoyed the answers. That does wrap up this week's new show. Thank you so much for today's guests. Where can people learn a little bit more about you? Nicole. So you can email me at nicole.perry at 11fs.com or you can find me on LinkedIn under Nicole Perry. Very cool. Ben. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. Ben Shemla, C-H-E-M-L-A. But more important, you can find my company on shares.io. Very, very cool. Dan. Uh, Twitter at DanMorgan1 uh, or LinkedIn. And of course, for Plaid, it's plaid.com. Very cool. Christy. Christy Kim, Christy with K, K-R-I-S-T-Y-K-I-M. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and our company, Tomo Credit, is all over the social media, TikTok, Instagram, and we are trending on Reddit, so you can check it out. I spent probably 10 hours yesterday answering questions, so I feel like any questions imaginable were answered, so you can check it out. Very, very cool. As for me, you can find me predominantly lurking on LinkedIn these days. If you want to hit me up, then feel free. And thank you to you for listening. If you want to join the conversation, head over to social media or email us on podcast at 11fs.com. Super fun show. Thank you very much for joining. Goodbye. Goodbye.